hey everybody, we must continue meeting like this. It's nice. I'm Gareth. This is Somewhere on Earth. And keeping us company today is tech and politics journalist Issy Lepowski. And uh, she's one of our regular experts or presenters' friends. And Issy, before we say hello properly, just to explain to the listener, if you don't have the hang of this already, then the whole idea is that I have, like a grown-up as it were, keeping me company through the podcast each week, somebody who knows stuff, basically. And uh, we could scarcely do better than you, Issy. So what do we need to know about you? Sure. Well, thank you for having me. I am a tech and politics journalist. I've worked at places like Wired and Protocol, and now I'm an independent freelance reporter. I'm a contributing writer at Fast Company. I write for other places like the New York Times and lots of other places. I'm excited to be here. All right. So from here on, we'll be hearing from you every few editions here on Somewhere on Earth. So there we are. We're underway. I declare the time podcast o'clock. So let's go. And it's an absolutely massive one today. So much to get through. We're talking about deepfakes, misinformation and drones. So much to say about all of them, including the study that says deepfakes in the Ukraine conflict are undermining trust and fueling conspiracy theories. Meanwhile, misinformation in Gaza. Europe has put out a stern warning to the tech companies about content moderation. But is the EU now straying into censorship? And we hear a perspective from a Palestinian woman I know who's uh, over on the West Bank. Elsewhere, back in Ukraine, the war is driving some serious innovation in drone technology. So you will obviously want to have your say. We hope so. So here comes the WhatsApp number. It's international code 44 for the UK, 74863294484. Okay, that was good. But this time now, program it into your phone. Here goes. It's international code 44 and then 74863294484. Welcome to the Somewhere on Earth podcast. So you might remember this. It's June last year and three city mayors across Europe think at various times that they're in a video meeting with their counterpart in Ukraine, Vitaly Klitschko, mayor of Kiev. Now, these were separate encounters, but they all came to light after the Berlin mayor's office contacted the Ukrainian ambassador to Germany. And that's because the official's BS detector had basically kicked in when the meeting starting to go in some rather strange directions. So the mayor got a little bit uh, suspicious. So the mayors of Madrid and Vienna were similarly duped. Now, that case and many others are up for analysis in a study just out looking at deep fake videos during the full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine. The research concludes that fakes are undermining trust and underpinning conspiracy theories. Let's hear more from John Twomey of University College Cork, Ireland. He's uh, an author on this study. So welcome to Somewhere on Earth, John. And did we ever find out the origins of that Klitschko deepfake? Did it come from Russia or what do we know? Well, we do know, I should start with, thanks for having me on, actually. You're welcome. We do know, anyway, that it was orchestrated by a pair of Russian pranksters, uh, Vovon and Lexus. To say it was a deep deepfake, mm, I don't know. It, it's going to be a challenge because um, live deepfakes, live video deepfakes, they can be a bit of a challenge to produce. And there isn't much um, open source kind of technologies that can do that at the moment. The ones that are out there, I've used them, not very good. 
it could have just been uh, a regular fake or it could have been any other types of artificial intelligence kind of modified videos yeah yeah okay no of course because they were interacting with the apparent um vitaly klitschko through a video call so it's one possibility for instance that it was one of the pranksters who was just using some of that face swapping software to kind of map their face or the klitschko's face i should say onto their face Yes, from the screenshots, it looks kind of relatively poor quality. It also looks like it's been basically lifted from an actual real video uh, the mayor did. It could have just been a kind of rudimentary kind of animation software, or it could have been someone speaking over at the same time. We can't really say too much about that specific instance. Out of all of them, it's it's one of the most uh, dubious, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, amid a lot of dubiousness that you went through in your study. So, for instance, there was that synthetic video of a Ukrainian fighter jet that did the rounds. Um, Putin apparently announcing peace with Ukraine. Um, there was another one, I think, of Zelensky apparently surrendering. So all these kinds of things. And you looked at many of these fakes or deep fakes or shadow fakes, but various kinds of, shall we say, content that was dubious and designed to mislead people, maybe as just a fun prank, or possibly with more serious geopolitical malign motives in mind then, John? Yes, yes. Uh, there was a lot of, definitely pranks were, uh, were quite high up on the, on the register for it. There was a lot of humorous content alongside a lot of the more serious content. I suppose... We've heard all this this talk about deep fakes in the last few years. We've heard of their potential uses, and then for for us at UCC, we found it terrifying that, that it could be potentially used in this way. And you know, when we started, we were like, "That'll never happen. That'll never happen at all." And then a year later, we see all this these news coming out. We see the Zelensky deep fake, which was really the kind of impetus for the study, just seeing because that's been really the kind of the ter- most terrifying ones because of it, like the fact that it was also involved a hack of a Russian news website to broadcast the, the, the fake surrender message. Wow, that was so incredibly sophisticated, the fake itself, and then like the, the hacking, I suppose, to get into a media network. Um, so let's just get an idea of how you were studying these fakes, because it was partly about their content, but you went to Twitter traffic, didn't you? And in those days, I think you could call it Twitter, but you know what I mean? It was kind of seeing what people were saying about these fakes, seeing how they were being shared on the Twitter platform. Do I have that right? Yeah. So we use the qualitative uh, research methodology. It's kind of more useful for like for showing in practice what we can show in labs. I think there's been so much research around deepfakes and how people can detect them, but we wanted to you know, go to the proverbial streets and say, oh, what is the average kind of person saying online about, about these things? And especially how it gets twisted up in narratives around Twitter. So we basically analysed uh, over a thousand tweets we pointed out the kind of commonalities of them using a, a method called thematic analysis, and we just kind of connected that to a, to examples of, of deepfakes. Right, and this is the first research of its kind, isn't it? I think it is. I haven't found anything else, and I've read an absolute ton of deepfake <laughs> papers. <laughs> I think that, it's, again, because it's so novel, uh, there hasn't really been a conversation about deepfakes being used in war a year or two ago, and when there was, it was all hypotheticals. It was all what's going to happen in the future. So definitely we're the first paper to look at deepfakes and how they're actually being used in a real-life conflict. Sure. So having metaphorically gone out on the streets to ask people about you know, their opinions or what they made of them or what was being said about them, of course you went on the streets, as you say, this is looking at um, social media traffic. What did you find? Yeah, well, there was, a, there was kind of three main types of discussions around deepfakes. There was obviously the kind of misinformation kind of discourse around deepfakes. And that was that in many ways positive where people were saying, you know, trying to help people identify deepfakes. 
and then often kind of times kind of focusing on people's concerns, their real concerns about cybersecurity, and yeah, and just saying that the the ease of which deepfakes can be used to mislead people. Then we found this kind of uh, this kind of connects to another second theme, which was skepticism. And skepticism came up in two very important ways. There was a kind of healthy skepticism where people were like, again, oh, let's just let's just take a step back and 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 learn how to trust the media that we're encountering online. And there was the more unhealthy skepticism. And that was people just believing deepfakes, but but actually more importantly and more commonly, it was people calling real videos fakes. And I think that was one of the more significant findings of our work. And finally, the third the, the third theme that emerged was around kind of humorous and uh, non-misinformation deepfakes and how they also played a role in the conflict. I mean, it's an online conflict uh, as well as an in-person one. And people spread all kinds of uh, positive and negative content online. Yeah, and we'll bring Issy in in a minute. But when you say how these different kind of videos and some of the pranks played into the conflict, what do you mean by that? How did that happen? Yeah, well, I think we've we've just kind of mentioned the, that kind of Ovan Alexis prank and how that was uh, used to well, try and make the European mayors look like they were fools mm-hmm. or try and get them even worse into saying something that they didn't actually want to say on, on tape. Uh, so I think there was certainly there was certainly that side of things. There was also, we did find that people kind of ran with the entertainment sides of the deep fakes without always thinking through the, the content they were posting online, I think. And then that would lead to them being criticised themselves over it. You could almost call it prank warfare, I suppose, if that term's not being coined already. So, presenter's friend, uh, Issy, listening to all this, I know that this you're very interested in the regulatory side of things and certainly this aspect of the, the web. So, what do you make of it? I, I found this research really interesting, particularly the idea that, you know, you don't necessarily have to even have deep fakes floating around for them to be a problem. You only need to have sort of the specter of the possibility of deep fakes being in existence um, to have people questioning, um, you know, real factual content. And so that itself adds to this sort of fog of war and mm-hmm. all of this, um, this environment of misinformation, the idea that any piece of, you know, factual on the ground um, reporting video, first person testimony now is subject to debate about whether or not it is in fact real. And I think that's um, a really important thing to think about and uh, an important finding in this research. Mm. And something rather bizarre happened in the recent election campaign in Slovakia. And this was a, an audio recording posted to Facebook that supposedly showed the liberal progressive candidate discussing how to rig the election. Now, being audio only, this flew under the radar of Facebook's policy against fake videos. And so this was a tight election contest and victory in the end went to the nationalist, populist, left wing and anti-Ukraine support direction social democracy party. And that is fascinating to me, Issy, that this was kind of flying under the radar, being audio only. It didn't get picked up by Facebook's compliance and compliance. And I, I suspect maybe could foil some wider regulation. Is that a danger from those audio only fakes? 
Absolutely. And I think what you see in that case, I believe um, the reporting on that was that this basically like fell through a loophole in Facebook's policies where their policies prohibited faked video content, but not faked audio content. Um, And adding to the issue was the fact that in some countries before elections, there's a moratorium on uh, on the amount of information you can put out on the public sphere um, about the election. So it was really hard to combat um, in any sort of formal institutional way this misinformation that was circulating online where the rules hadn't caught up to reality. Now, Mike Sapperton, let's bring you in here. We're going to hear from you properly in a few moments because you're talking about drone innovation in Ukraine. So you are from that country. So this must have crossed your radar. Maybe you've even seen some of these. I'm sure you have some of these fakes that have come up on your own feeds on your phone and what have you. So now you're hearing that there's some proper academic research going into it. I hope that's of some reassurance to you that at least somebody sensible somewhere is trying to make something of it. Um, first of all, thank you for having me here. And uh, this Klitschko incident is actually, there is not as much AI part here because um, Wovan and Lexus are like masters of these games. So before that, they fool top EU politicians like all kinds of people. Well, for them, it's obviously more of an experience game. But the overall flood of fakes, both AI generated and uh, just, uh, you know, the old fashioned ones uh, is definitely incredibly high, incredibly high. And it's only increasing with each passing month, I would say. So final word from you on this then, John. Uh, What do you hope this research will um, achieve? And I'm thinking partly behind my question is around conspiracy theories, for instance, because that was part of the research, you know, how you hope that this kind of research will better help combat this whole problem of conspiracy theories that are incredibly shareable, aren't they? So they spread like wildfire around the social media and beyond. Yeah, uh, definitely. I think that's kind of the main finding for me even is that Conspiracies and deepfakes are a very understudied kind of duo, and it makes perfect sense in many ways that deepfakes will be used as part of conspiracy theories. I mean, look back 60 years ago, people were saying, oh, the moon landings are faked, and why were they saying that? Well, they saw they went and saw 2001 A Space Odyssey once and thought Stanley Cooper could do it. So, like, there's clearly conspiracy theories evolve with technology, and as we learn to discredit media evidence with technology... It increases and uh, it just puts another kind of weapon in the arsenal of conspiracy theorists. It just allows them to say, oh, this world leader has been killed and replaced by a deep fake now. And so I think we're definitely going to see the long term consequences of that. And it's something that I'd love to to study a a bit further as well. It's because I think it's very important when trying to develop interventions for conspiracies and especially especially conspiracies that involve deep fake technology, that you're not actually increasing people's belief in, in the conspiracies. Stay with us. We'll be right back. AI is changing the game of business. Will you be on the winning team? I'm Jordan Wilson, the host of the Everyday AI podcast and your coach to help you learn the X's and O's of AI. Artificial intelligence isn't just a new player in the game. It's a new sport altogether. So if you don't quickly put AI into play, your competitors will run up the score. I've spent my whole life building winning teams from coaching basketball to working with big players like Nike and Jordan brand. My next move, helping you win with Everyday AI. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or on everydayaipodcast.com. Let's tap into AI together and put points on the board. All right. 
Well, we'll definitely keep an eye on your research, John. Stay in touch, won't you? And um, I think we're going to have to let you go because do you have some kind of massive storm bearing down on you outside? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not good down here in, uh, in, in West Cork oh. at the moment. <laughs> Oh, man, take it easy over there. All right, uh, John, thank you so much. That's John Twomey of University College Cork in Ireland. And now this next bit might sound like some kind of fake or prank, but no, this this is for real. We're not winding you up here. This um, popped up into a certain somebody's inbox, and the letter went like this. Dear Mark Zuckerberg, may I politely remind you of your obligations under the EU's content moderation legislation? Misinformation is spreading following the Hamas terrorist attack on Israel. Please comply with our rules on terms of service and on swift action on illegal content in the EU. You'll also know that we have all those other issues with Meta that we've been talking about and you still haven't fully addressed. Do us a favour, will you, and just get this sorted or we'll hit you with some big penalties. Have a nice day. Cheers, Thierry. Now, OK, I have paraphrased that a little bit, but that in essence uh, was the message from uh, one of the EU commissioners. This is Thierry Breton to Meta. In a, comp- in a letter to Meta, obviously the company that owns Facebook. And uh, it's a warning, as you probably gathered there, to abide by Europe's new legislation on content moderation. And similar warnings have gone out to the other big tech companies. Issy, you have been writing about this. So what kind of content is the EU so worried about here? Well, I think it's a range of content. I mean, top of their list is content that, you know, glorifies or, you know, spreads terrorist propaganda, um, which is explicitly illegal and is under, you know, European law, you know, companies are required to remove that. Um, So that's sort of the first order of business. But second, and where there's a little bit more of a tension is around the very kind of misinformation and disinformation that we were talking about in our first segment, you know, how, how content Content is manipulated um, and used to spread false messages, um, sometimes with uh, in, a, in a specifically coordinated way, sometimes, you know, purely as a as a one off or in certain cases as, you know, satire or what have you, all all different forms of information being manipulated and used to you know spread a false message about what's really happening on the ground. Um, it seems that the European commissioner was equally interested in addressing all of that kind of content. And that's where you get into much trickier territory around free expression. Mm, well, and that's this is one of the big concerns, isn't it, around um, censorship or sleepwalking into some kind of censorship. And to take us into those concerns, though, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about this legislation, this shiny new legislation that the uh, commissioner there, Thierry Breton, is so um, boldly waving around uh, under the nose of Mark Zuckerberg and uh, other uh, technology companies. It's the DSA, isn't it, or the Digital Services Act. It's only quite recently come in across Europe. Tell me a bit more about this legislation. Sure. So it really is the backdrop to these letters that have gone out. It is because of the Digital Services Act that Thierry Breton is writing to all of these companies saying, look, you have new obligations under this new law, and we are going to hold you to those obligations. The Digital Services Act is basically a, a you know pretty sweeping piece of legislation that um, puts into place certain new guidelines, certain new requirements for very large online platforms when it comes to content moderation. Um, at the high level, 
Yes, they have to remove uh, any content that is explicitly illegal. So again, that's things like terrorist propaganda or child sexual abuse material. And what is illegal may vary from country to country. But then it also requires that these, again, called very large online platforms, must mitigate the risks of other types of content that is often referred to as lawful, but awful. It is uh, it is legal, but we all know that it can have you know, really negative impacts on on the world. So that is things like disinformation, election manipulation, and um, and all of that. But the law was controversial because, you know, you had different countries coming to the table saying, well, we don't know how comfortable we are with the government telling us what is and what isn't misinformation and what is and isn't true and has to be taken down. You can imagine a lot of ways that that can and has been throughout very recent history been abused. You know, you saw that with the outbreak of of the the war in Ukraine, how Russia was trying to abuse power over platforms to sort of control the narrative around the war. And so the D- Digital Services Act, as it was being created, was pretty controversial in that respect. And so the drafters, you know, tried to really draw a very fine line. So they said that, you know, these very large online platforms have to mitigate the risks of these other types of harmful content, but it didn't explain exactly how they had to mitigate those risks. So different platforms could take different kinds of approaches to the problem. The real requirement was that they were thinking about the problem and that they could prove that they were taking some kind of action on the problem. And so I think that the issue that a lot of civil liberties groups and um, free expression groups took with the letters that Terry Breton has been sending around the war in Gaza is that it seems to sort of cross that line. It seems to be sort of, you know, jawboning, as we call it in the States, using the power of government to sort of very firmly persuade these companies to um, actually remove that content, when in fact, that is not what the law explicitly calls for. And the law actually very carefully um, went to great lengths not to call for that. And so there's a concern that, you know, right out of the gate, the Digital Services Act has only been in effect for a couple months. And here it has its first really major test of, you know, how it is going to be used and or abused. And I think a lot of folks are fearful that the European commissioner is sort of failing that test. Right. Is it just that the commissioner is using this as a timely opportunity just to remind everybody, look, we have this legislation. If your platforms violate this legislation, we are coming after you. And then from here on, presumably, they'll just back off and leave this legislation as it's meant to be. Like As you say, making sure that these companies have a framework to prevent harm or mitigate harm online, but not in terms of individuals from the commission just going through every single post saying, yeah, delete that, keep that, you know, is this really just a message saying, look, back off if you know what's good for you? I or think behave so. yourself at least, I should say. I think that, you know, the, the commissioner was careful to say, you know, we are tasked with, you know, both protecting the public and protecting freedom of expression. And the letters did stop short of specifically naming any, you know, egregious posts. But they did sort of imply that it was the existence of these posts that was the problem. It, they they said, you know, we have received reports of, you know, fake information or disinformation on your platform. And so this is a problem. Under the DSA, the mere existence of that content is not the problem. The 
it's the question is whether these companies have the right processes in place to to deal with that content. Um, those are really the questions that that the commissioner should be asking. What processes do you have in place? Um, how are you living up to your requirements under the DSA? And really, those conversations are the idea behind the DSA is that there will be a free flow of information between the government and the platforms. And I think a lot of folks felt that in very publicly chastising the companies in this way, um, in these public letters, that this was a moment that was more about scoring political points than getting real answers to the question. All right, yeah. So almost like, you know, I have a legal requirement to take my vehicle to what we call an MOT check in this country, you know, just to make sure the car is in good condition and legally um, qualifies to go on the roads. You know, so the law tells me to go and have that test and to have a compliant vehicle. It doesn't tell me exactly how to drive. Maybe. Exactly. Okay. exactly. <laughs> so I've just got that on my mind because I was booking that appointment earlier on. So I've brought that a little <laughs> bit into work, maybe slightly unnecessarily, but thanks for going with it. Um, now, also, I, I'm very interested in, you know, while this whole debate is going on, this whole discussion about what this looks like to people um, in Gaza or Palestinians at large or the Palestinian um diaspora. And I just so happen to have been in touch with somebody I know who um, is actually in uh, the kind of area of the West Bank. I'm not going to say exactly where because I'm being careful what I say about them, um, as in not identifying who they are or exactly where they are. Um, but anyway, they have friends and loved ones in Gaza. So in this message they've sent me commenting um, really on what's going on, just to point out that this person is commenting on behalf of people that they know very well and are very close to and hold very dearly in Gaza. And the other thing to say is that we're doing this just as something I'm going to read out because the person, for very good reasons, didn't want to record their voice for us. Um, So anyway, this is somebody commenting um, on behalf of people in Gaza on false information about the conflict and also issues with connectivity and power in general. And um, she says, we have electricity for a couple of hours only. And the rest of the day, we can only charge our phones by the car batteries. Recently, as the war has progressed, most of us have gone on to have no electricity and no internet. Cellular networks are also cut off. This increases the difficulty for paramedics to receive casualty cases. And then in terms of uh, miss, and this is Gareth speaking again, not the person, but in in terms of um, false information, I was interested in what uh, this Palestinian person has to say about the effect of misinformation on um, the people over there. And this, by the way, is referring to pictures that the person alleges that Israel claims are of Israeli children wounded in the terrorist attack on the 7th of October. And in terms of the false information, this is what the person says, I feel very sad when I see accredited news outlets sharing fake news. Most of these pictures, in fact, are of Palestinian casualties. You must rely on reliable sources to get your news from. So an allegation that uh, Israel is misattributing images of children and injured people. Now, obviously, we don't have anybody from the Israeli authorities to give their point of view. So I have to point out, this is just what my contact in, uh, in on the West Bank thinks about that issue. Um, but I think I'm just going to throw this back to you, Issy. What it does show, whether you um, believe that account from that person or not about those misattributed or allegedly misattributed images, that this 
is so highly charged. This really matters. And I think the message that this contact of mine really wants to get across to people on our side of things is that media organisations just have to be so responsible and so vigilant to where they get their sources from, to how they source pictures and images and um, accounts of um, violence and injuries and so on. That's really the message from this person, that this is calling for accredited media actually to do better in terms of how it sources its information. Uh, Issy, a thought from you and then we'll move on. Sure. I mean, there's no question that there's just a tremendous amount of confusion and, and that's despite people's best efforts, right? You're operating in an environment that is already extremely difficult with internet connectivity shut off and um, very limited information um, getting out of this war zone. And so you have people, I think, some with bad intent and some with no intent at all, just a complete lack of visibility into what is real and what isn't, sharing information that may be misattributed or mislabeled or misleading in some way or another. It makes everyone's job uh, more difficult. And I, I fully agree that, um, you know, it is as as important as it is to get information out quickly um, in times like this. It is also critical to take a beat and make sure that that information is is factual and being represented properly. All right. Thanks, Issy. Uh, well, stand by because I'm sure you'll have uh, a lot to say about this next issue. We're going to stay with conflict. Uh, we're actually going now over to the conflict in Ukraine and how drone technology and innovation has just been going crazy over there, obviously, with the uh, conflict. And um, we're going to hear more now from Mike Sapaton, uh, who's previously of Forbes and now works in the venture capital industry. Uh, Mike is from Ukraine. And can you just put into context for me, Mike, the just the scale of the drone development that's going on and has been going on in Ukraine as a direct result of the conflict? Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So the scale is absolutely massive. I think this is one of the most impactful part of this war, which uh, will forever change the warfare at, as we know it. I believe Ukraine uses several, like, couple thousand uh, drones per day. So you, you can count it by months and the, the numbers are only increasing because more and more people are getting skilled uh, with them and uh, there are more and more ways you can use it for um, various purposes. Obviously, the main one is this so-called FPV kamikaze drones, but there are other ones which are used at it's unimaginably big industry which just, uh, you know, was born out of nothing in this uh, almost two years now. What kind of improvements are we seeing in drone technology and in the capabilities of drones? 
Yeah, I think one of the most interesting points is that we are not really seeing the most part of improvements in terms of, you know, capabilities, but in terms of scale, which you can produce drones and their price. So what you need is to make drone as cheap as possible and as reliable as possible. This is, you know, I think many people in the US or in more Western countries, they think they will get more advanced drones. But what you need is actually is the scale, is the absolute massive numbers. And Ukraine managed to kind of downsize the price uh, significantly, improve the reliability. And uh, there were also incredible achievements in terms of this more large scale drones, which could be much more deadly to enemies, infrastructure or um, vehicles, whatever other capabilities. So I think the price point went down, the usability went up, the durability of drones went up. Yeah, there were significant advancement across all, all the spectrum. And of course, AI coming into it, AI gets into everything, it seems, doesn't it? But uh, with the drones in uh, in Ukraine and as part of their development, uh, like AI-assisted drones. So can you just give me an idea of how that is helping? And I'm wondering if it's something to do with, you know, if you lose your connection with your drone, it's quite handy if it can have some level of autonomy to complete its mission. Just tell me how AI is coming into this. Yeah, so I think uh, we all understand that. So, for example, eventually taxis will be AI-driven. We won't need a driver. And drones eventually probably will be AI-driven too. But as of now, it's more of a very niche experimental field, which I think is... You know, we don't know much in public about the developments. Yes, there were some reports about the usage of AI-assisted technologies, but from my uh, experience of talking with soldiers, all drones are piloted manually. As of now, there are very, very small amount of testing and uh, poaching around with using AI to fully maneuver the drone just because it's such a, you know, you need a massive uh, training database for any kind of AI solution. And it, it's not easy to to get this data as of now to mark yeah, them reliably. And, and to say nothing of, of the huge ethical and potentially regulatory issues of having anything with a lethal payload that can operate in any way autonomously. I mean, that surely must be an issue. Yeah. It, it must be an issue, but we can go with this ethical part way uh, further because eventually the Chinese said you can't use any drones for this kind of warfare, but it's still used. So I think when the stakes are so high, ethical reasons might be not as valid for the stakeholders on both sides. I think just the technology is still very limited and probably like China and the US will be the powers which will have the actual capability to deliver it on a scale. And probably US will have a lead in AI and China will have an absolute lead in the actual hardware. Right. So what, what do you make of this proliferation of combat drones? Then um, ISSI, you know, we've heard there about uh, the US and China, uh, but obviously the peg for this story is what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, what does it look like to you? 
I think you're right to bring up the ethical concerns around putting AI into into drone technology. I know we've seen, you know, a lot of pushback even from U.S. tech companies, uh, workforces where, you know, they have found that the facial recognition technology or image recognition technology that they've been working on sort of happily in Silicon Valley could be used for, you know, by the Department of Defense here in the United States to be used alongside drones um, to better identify targets. I know that there's a lot of concern from the folks who work on that. I do think it's really interesting that in Ukraine now you have this sort of living laboratory where a lot of technologies that could not be tested out in the wild anywhere else um, are capable of being tested now. Um, things like, you know, ways to circumvent jamming technology um, that are now, you know, possible to test in Ukraine because you have these real world conditions um, and you don't have to sort of manufacture them in a place that otherwise would not want that kind of jamming technology to be deployed widely. So I think there are obvious advantages to innovation, but there are also clear concerns integrating AI technology into this, you know, lethal weapons. Yeah, and just pick that up for us at that point, um, Mike, about, uh, you know, why bother simulating a war when, unfortunately, Ukraine's in the middle of a real one. So it is this kind of real-time tweaking of the uh, capabilities of drones and, of course, many other um, defensive and offensive technologies. Yeah, yeah, definitely. This is unfortunately a situation and probably, you know, probably the jet technology wouldn't be as advanced if we didn't have the World War II or we wouldn't have a nuclear energy as fast as we have now because World War II. So this is kind of the same conflict, but for drone technology. And we probably just don't yet realize how much it will change uh, the warfare in the next 10, 20 years. Right, and I was just going to finish, funny enough, you've anticipated my last question, which was going to be, do you have any idea, Mike, where this might be going? We've already talked about AI, uh, but of course there are so many other aspects to drones and just how ubiquitous they are um, and how quickly and in how much big numbers they can be made in. Where do you see the next 10 or 20 years? And, and don't worry, we won't hold you to it. Yeah, yeah. So um, obviously, I think one of the most insane part of the drone warfare is that no matter how advanced your vehicle, your main battle tank or IVF is, it will be taken out by a cheap $500 drone. As of now, Ukraine has proven that there is no 100% reliable jamming technology. There is no 100% reliable anti-air um, ballistic gun. Nothing will stop a big avalanche of drones. It renders a lot of offensive tactics virtually useless. It increases the losses. It decreases the speed of any offensive. It puts uh, down a big effort on who can do this low-level huge production. And we all know the country which is now basically supplying two sides of the conflicts without breaking a sweat. So if that country goes into their own war, it will take down anyone in terms of production numbers. And and I hope that uh, the other party will find a way to counter it with some other advancement tech, which probably is around the corner, but is definitely not public and is not seen in Ukraine because not 
not neither Russians, neither Ukrainians are yet capable to take down all the drones or to really minimize the, the effects uh, on the on the all kinds of um, warfare. Right, Mike, uh, we'll leave it there. A final word, only if you want to, from you, Issy Lepowski. As a presenter's friend, the platform is yours. Or have you had enough? Uh, no, I mean, <laughs> I think I think, um, <laughs> I think we've covered a lot of ground here today. Um, my, I guess, area of expertise is, is certainly more on the sort of world of misinformation, disinformation, which is something I'm going to continue to cover in both Ukraine and in Gaza. All right. Thank you. There you go. That'll do for today. Uh, But let's just give you a few little ways that you can get in touch, dear listener. And please do get in touch. We're only a new podcast. We want to know how we're doing and we want some friends. So just please get in touch. And uh, at this early stage in the game, if you do send us something half decent or controversial or funny or legal, I hope, um, then there's a very good chance it will get read out. And hey, you get to hear yourself on a podcast. What fun. So here we go. Email. Hello at Somewhere on Earth, that's hello at somewhereonearth.co. And WhatsApp, here's the number again. Come on, put it into your phone. Um, 44, that's code 44, 7486 329 484. So the UK code 7486-329-484. 329-484. I will know that off by heart at some point. And uh, we are on the Facebook and on X, formerly known as Twitter. So just search for Somewhere on Earth on um, any of those platforms and you can come and find us. And that'll do very nicely. Wow, what a podcast that was. All right, just before we go, here come the credits. Audio and sound editor, that's Keziah Wenham Kenyon. Also thanks to head of broadcast content, John Cronin at Lanson's Team Afana. Our production manager is Liz Tui. The editor is Anya Litterovic. And, uh, oh, and me. Yeah, yeah, me, me, Gareth Mitchell. It's all about me, me, me. (laughs) Thanks for listening, folks. We'll be back next time. Bye.